Hi, I'm Mark Kent. And I'm Jacob Pusey. And you're listening to the Art and Science of Running podcast. If you climb the new sea Welcome back to episode three of the Art and Science of Running podcast with Mal Kent and Jacob Pusey. In episode two, we, we talked a little bit more about uh, some of the work that we've both done um, in coaching and also observing groups specifically. Um, Mal talked a fair bit about um, the work that he has done in Kenya with the NN running team, uh, specifically the group that Elliot Kipchoge and Patrick Sang are working out of. Um, in, in Kenya, and uh, I spoke a little bit about some of the groups that I've coached. Um, much of the work that we both do now is done remotely, uh, thanks to <laughs> advancements to technology, um, but we realize that many of the runners that we work with work uh, or train with others, um, that running is a social sport and it is a group sport, uh, whether it's a team or um, just even running in races, we, we do interact with one another. And so uh, we felt that was important. Uh, in episode two, we also discussed a little bit about um, Malk's background with uh, the development, uh, the testing of some of the wearable technologies or some of the, some of the devices that we use to measure what we do, and the, <laughs> the myriad metrics that we use to uh, analyze and evaluate running performance. And Malk has been uh, kind of worked on every <laughs> side of, of that development, um, and and we're we're here again in Cochrane, Alberta, in in Malk's basement, uh, his gym, his library, his uh, workspace, and we're uh, we're discussing um, some of these devices, some of these technologies, some of these metrics. Uh, again, Malk and his uh, family moved to this area in large part because the main R&D hub for Garmin Technologies is here in Cochrane, Alberta, in Canada. So um, we're just gonna get right to it. Uh, and, and we wanna ask some, we wanna ask Malk um, specifically some of the questions that, that I receive as a coach, uh, some of the questions that I receive as a race director, um, and even some of the questions that I have specifically. Um, I have some general knowledge of how some of these technologies work, but but I don't think there are many people out there who have as intimate <laughs> uh, knowledge as to how these technologies work. Um, and so uh, we're going to ask Malk some questions that, that we've received, some user or some listener questions. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, we'll, we'll share some experiences related to these questions. So first and foremost, um, Malk, can you tell us a little bit about GPS and <laughs> What it is and how it works uh, it may seem like a very basic question to someone with your uh, knowledge, but uh, it seems to be a rather complex and um, confounding um, technology for for much of the running world. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
so I won't go into like hyper hyper details, but enough to like paint the story um, that people can sort of visualize what's happening. And um, of course, when we're talking about GPS, we're really talking about the context of, of runners. So we're essentially talking about um, watches and the GP GPS modules within watches. Of course, you can run if you're a Strava kind of person. You can run with the phone as well and um, and do it that way or whatever run app you use. Uh, there are others available. <laughs> and um, yeah, we get back to kind of watches. So uh, essentially what's happening is, you know, in, um, in terms of concept is that we're talking with uh, satellites, essentially, that are orbiting this planet. And um, uh, we are pinging those satellites for them to give us a um, location of where we are on the Earth, on the Earth's surface. So the Earth is essentially split up um, from its uh, uh, north and south pole and also um, going kind of east and west around the Earth, of course. Without getting into uh, complex geomatics, it's basically, uh, um, uh, or geodynamics, I should say, it's really, uh, a matter of like dividing up the Earth's surface into locations and we can get our coordinates of where we are at any time and the satellites kind of help us do that. So um, um, we can essentially combine multiple uh, signals from multiple satellites to increase uh, precision in measuring where we are, where our signal is coming from. So um, it's kind of a two-way relationship between whatever the devices that you you hold or wear to the satellites that are able to pick you up um, that are connected to you and um, I won't get into the complexities of like um, how different satellites <laughs> uh, accept or don't accept certain signals and um, and things like that and um, you know and who owns what satellites and things like that depending on where you are in the world but um, and so uh, what that ultimately means is that it can be very, very accurate. As a remote means of telling where you are, it can be really accurate. We're talking like um, any, you know, uh, one or two meters or maybe maybe 10 meters is your accuracy or whatever it is, but it can get very, very accurate nowadays. And um, the, the concept is the watch will try and uh, connect to multiple uh, satellites, multiple external Device, uh, devices or machines, whatever you want to call it. And, um, and so by doing that, it can really get quite precise. And uh, what it means also is that you can be moving. So you can get relatively accurate data of where exactly you are positioned when you're moving. However, and this is a really fundamental concept to all things wearable, is that wearables are generally limited by batteries. And the biggest problem, the biggest headache with wearables is how you can serve and be efficient with battery because GPS hammers battery life. <laughs> so um, the other stuff that you're doing na more natively, like uh, around your body, other external sensors and things like that, don't worry about that. That's all cool. When you go to GPS on the watch, you suck a lot of battery. So the question then becomes how often you sample your GPS location. So you have a trade-off as is always the case with wearables, between do you want an accurate location all the time, like instantaneously, or and have not much battery life, or do you want to conserve the battery, the battery goes longer, and you effectively subsample uh, your instantaneous location. And, uh, and so that's kind of like, 
what's happening with the GPS. It's a balancing act. I mean, watches nowadays, they can go for like, you know, um, 14, even 18 hours continuous. Uh, Bachelor Life has got better, um, but it always has its fundamental limitations. If we get to the context of a runner who's running a relatively quickish workout, let's say the runner's like running, I don't know, four minutes per kilometer pace in the workout, then you're going to have fluctuations, some fluctuation in the accuracy of the pace that's coming off the GPS, because you may or may not have a number of satellites to interact with at any given time. Yeah, you, you might go into kind of like more quiet places, especially if you're a trail runner, for sure. Um, but then equally, it depends if you're, have you just sampled that location right then when you've looked at the watch as well. So um, that's why things can fluctuate. As we don't have like ultimate, ultimate perfect accuracy. When you're looking at something like pace, for example, mm-hmm. it's based off GPS. So that kind of spins me off into pace for example as a number coming back on the watch Mm -hmm. so uh, gps is what we generally are using well certainly outdoors of course Mm -hmm. all the time as we're hammering the gps for that you can also measure pace more locally because you can have for example an accelerometer on the foot in the form of a foot pod Mm -hmm. where that is um, using firmware algorithms off that sensor it's then sending information to the watch all the time, low power as well. That's the key thing about that. Um, but that then needs a lot of good calibration to make sure that's accurate. And people who have these devices from the past will know you have to go through this calibration process. So you have to run exactly 400 meters and then tell the watch that was 400 meters and it does its calibration and blah, blah, blah. And that calibration would have to be updated every so often as well. So that has its pitfalls too. But it can go anywhere. So you can have you can have no GPS signal, and that's going to give you a number. You're pretty good. I mean, you can get GPS almost anywhere. I mean, yeah, okay, you start getting out into the mountains, really, really far away from anyone, and it can it can change. But hopefully, that gives people kind of a bit of an indication of what's going on, GPS wise. Yeah, uh, I know we sort of talked about this before, and perhaps we'll get into it a little bit. But um, yeah, GPS when you're inside inside a building then you have obviously a major problem depending on how the building's constructed and what it's made out of and everything else and are you near a window or, or something else. So mm-hmm. you can have real trouble in certain types of buildings picking up the GPS signal. And if you don't realise that's happening, yeah, then you can have all kinds of problems. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that, that's a really important point. Um, again, as, as both an athlete, um, I mean, as you were speaking, a whole host of questions came into my mind but as an athlete I uh, I was kind of in my prime as a marathoner when GPS GPS watches became more and more ubiquitous I mean I, I still know some people some elites uh, who don't wear GPS watches they still sure. refuse to like be slaves to whatever <laughs> the sampling going on when they look down their watches my my brother one of those people he he won't wear a gps watch he doesn't want something that big on his any on his wrist and he also just likes the traditional timex chrono that works for him that being said most runners most of the runners that i work with uh wear a a tracking device of some sort that uh with which they can then upload <laughs> a whole uh, host of data points for me to analyze um but i, I do recall as an athlete, uh, when that transition occurred, uh, when when I was with a group of 
of runners trying to qualify for the Olympic trials in the marathon. And, and there was a group of 25 of us, all of whom were supposed to be better than I. Uh, and um, they were wearing, I would say, pretty archaic GPS watches at the time. Um, and there were some undulations in, in the first 10K of the marathon. And man, when we would hit a mile mark and their split, you know, all of our watches were more or less beeping in unison and, and a split would come out that wasn't, you know, within the second of the exact pace we had to run, people were losing it. I mean, they were just like, they, they, were, throw, they were throwing in the towel. Like there was so much carnage in the first half just because there were some undulations, even though it kind of was a gradual downhill at the end at sea level, perfect race conditions, but just mentally, as soon as it became, like, s people assumed it's science, therefore it's precise, um, they just, they lost it. Um, and I ended up, you know, I, I wasn't even allowed to place water or bottles at, at this race um, because I, I was such an outlier. And, and I remember running by the, the, the tables with all the bottles. Um, well ahead of all of the people who had either dropped out or were, were behind me because they lost it mentally. Um, and I just, I kind of just rolled with it and, um, and was able to just kind of, I, I think I was wearing a very old Garmin at the time, but, um, I didn't care. It was like, I'm here to race. Like I, and, and I, anything under X pace is still going to be a PR. So I'm just going to try and keep it under this ceiling and not like I have to run this exact space. So, um, so I, I do see how it can be a limitation. Uh, at the same time, uh, both as an athlete and as a coach and a race director, uh, one of the things that I that I notice is that oftentimes, um, especially early on in the development of GPS, the the readings, especially in big city marathons, are are off from are often off, whether it be from the mile or kilometer markers as we're going, um, yeah, or the total distance. So it may be yeah. a marathon. So rather than saying twenty six point two miles, it's twenty seven point one miles. Like yeah. I got a lot of that from the Chicago Marathon this last year, uh, or Boston. Like it was yeah. it was long on their watches, or wow. Uh, but uh, and, it, and that's happened to me before as well. And these are historically like certified <laughs> courses. And so why why would there be that variability between? That's a really good question. Yeah. 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 So um. Uh, oh, the first thing I want to just like throw in yeah. from the previous point sure. is that, um, and I hope you agree with this, is that um, when people are running with a GPS watch and you've got the beep set up, so you've got an auto lap set up like per kilometer per mile, mm -hmm. that's a good time to check your pace average okay. rather than checking it all the time. Mm -hmm. Then you don't get flustered by fluctuations in the accuracy of the GPS okay. because when it gets to a lap beeping at you and giving you the average, it should then give you an accurate with all the fluctuations taken into account. Uh, but yeah, getting us to this point, first thing is obviously that people don't run straight lines. So, so the first thing, if I was sitting on the side of the fence with pro GPS for a second, uh, the first thing I'd say is, well, people, they don't, you know as well as I do, in marathon majors, the big, big marathons, there's a blue line that goes down the middle of the road that tells you where it was measured. That's the fastest line on the course, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you go to Berlin or London or any of these marathons, and so, and that's not where people are running. So well, the first thing is, is people running with a certain amount of zigzagging around. So that will add obviously like distance, um, over distance. So they won't cross the line at 42.2, whatever. They'll, they'll cross the line at um, something a little bit more. So that's the first thing. In the defense, well, as we, if we look at the, kind of the recent watches, anything made in the last like two or th three years, maybe even four years, um, it should have a good enough GPS module within within it that 
um, what will happen is no matter what's gone on during the race, when the recording session is stopped, it should, there should be a recalibration that happens. So, um, because it knows the initial starting location, coordinate location, right, in mm. GPS, and it knows where you finish. Oh, okay. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. um, there's an opportunity there for the watch to just do a quick recalibration and say, hang on a second. Like, there were fluctuations during the race, but I know exactly where I started and I know exactly where I finished kind of thing. And so it depends on the um, on the, uh, the the algorithms, the firmware algorithms that's, that's, that's in this particular, whatever particular device. But there's an opportunity there to do a quick recalibration when when the session is stopped and some devices will do that. And so then I'm like, well, you should then get even more accuracy then. Mm-hmm. No matter what happened in the race, that end point, you should get some uh, definitive um, um, accuracy added there. Watches that are older, watches that are like 10 years old, 9, 10 years old, different then because they have diff- they have old, much much older uh, gps uh, hardware inside them uh, receivers inside them so then it's different so they can be struggling for other other like hardware limitation reasons so um yeah and then i mean every just to put this point in as well of course we've got what we, i mean we can name some of the brands here like sunto garmin uh, polar uh, you know all the all the sports brands like uh, like nike apple and other other stuff we've got all these different brands of watches and of course, everyone has their proprietary um, algorithms on the watch, right? So um, it's one thing that you've got the hardware, you've got that um, GPS receiver. That's just a whole bunch of random numbers, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's got to be turned into something meaningful. And that's done by firmware algorithms. Everyone is different on every uh, manufacturer's watch. So some will be better than others. Uh, they're not all made equal. So uh, that will mean that you'll get natural differences between what comes off one person's watch and another person's watch as well and then the generations of watch within a brand obviously the same so yeah that's uh that's maybe part of the explanation going on there i think yeah and i think uh really when you get when you get to a stationary point where you most likely are stationary after you've crossed the line Mm -hmm. and then you some at some point or maybe you're one of these people that actually remembers to press the button when you cross the line, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but if you were stationary after the line, for example, and you went, oh, boom, hit, the, hit the button, stop the session, quick. Because you're stationary for some amount of time, X seconds, that will be an accurate GPS point right there. Okay. Right, so that, 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 and you've got a modern watch, like a recent watch, that's an accurate GPS point where you're going to be, I don't know, you might even be within a meter of the actual real location because you're probably in a city marathon, let's say. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's not going to be an accurate location. Okay. So um, yeah, you should so because of that you shouldn't get too much error. So yeah, uh, but I wouldn't underestimate like people going long around the corners, diving off for of water bottles. I mean, yeah, that's all extra exactly. distance, right? Yeah, taking bathroom stops, <laughs> yeah. things like that. Um, when I first got into race directing, uh, it was primarily road races that I directed, and you know this was years ago. It was actually in the heart of the. <laughs> the more recent recession in the u.s and uh and it was in large part because eh, no i i was directing races before that but i started a a little series down in oregon for that cross-country team that i mentioned in the last episode uh in large part because there were such deep budget cuts that they essentially just like cut the budget for high school cross-country team the they they eliminated the two middle school cross-country teams that were feeding into my program and 
uh, a number of my athletes couldn't afford camp. Couldn't we couldn't afford even the the entry fees for <laughs> to go to the invitationals. We couldn't afford the bus trips. Couldn't afford shoes. <laughs> couldn't afford, afford uniforms. And then they were cutting the budgets. And so, uh, in, even though it was a very small non-running community, um, we we just started some races uh, as fundraisers for our program. And so some of those were were you know five five k ten k's, but eventually a marathon, um, a two state marathon because we were on the border of Oregon and Washington. And so I got into the the business of uh, certifying courses and measuring courses. Uh, and, and what some people don't understand, especially with road races and, and uh, you know, Boston qualifying courses or USATF qualifying courses or USAT for triathlon, that kind of thing, or whatever the governing body is in, in that country. Um, it, at least when I was doing it, it had to be measured with a wheel, uh, not with a, not with a wearable device, even a wearable device on your bike, you know, it would, so it would either you often had to provide two different sets of supporting uh, data sets. Uh, so a measuring wheel. So if you can imagine going out and walking or running 42K or 26.2 miles, that, that takes that that takes your Sunday long run to new levels. Um, or you ac- you actually have to like break it in and like, you know, provide the GPX coordinates for where, where you started and stopped and stuff like that. Um, so there's that. Um or you can do it with a uh, with the wheel on your bike, but uh, but they or pedometer, so to speak. But they didn't allow cars, and they didn't allow um, GPSs. Maybe they are now, um, but like you said, uh, the technology has improved quite substantially. At that time, I remember running. I believe it was the Portland Marathon, and even though I had a watch, it, it was more than five k into the race. I, I had hit start at the start and I didn't begin to get a signal or anything other than just time. Like I wasn't getting any measurement because we were surrounded by skyscrapers. And, and I know that the same thing happened to, to my wife, uh, Amy recently with a newer watch, uh, in Houston recently. And, and a lot of people had that issue and, and some of the timing, uh, from a major, I mean, this was a very well-funded, uh, qualifying marathon, uh, and half marathon. Um, I, I was trying to track certain athletes and I couldn't get even their readings because there's so many skyscrapers around there that they weren't picking up the satellites. And then all of a sudden someone finishes and you couldn't see them the whole time. So, uh, I think it's important for people to recognize that even, even though very smart people are creating these devices that satellites have their limitations and the, the algorithms have their limitations, the, yeah. um, the firmware updates <laughs> need to be updated when it says update your watch kind of thing. Like, cause there could be pretty substantial changes that, that occur, um, but it, it actually cracks me up sometimes just going on Twitter when people are complaining about not being able to upload through their different platforms, whether it's the Sunto, Movescount, you know, Strava, whatever, Garmin. Um, there there se- seems to be something that we can't just throw out. It, it's, it's part and parcel of what we do now, but but it certainly creates a lot of questions and, and kind of wreaks havoc when, when things aren't exactly yeah. as we would expect them. I mean, one of the classic things even if you have like um, um, if you have a, like a recent watch uh, like a Garmin 935 or 735 or whatever um, one of the little tricks um, uh, is basically to to hit the button to actually wake the watch up and put it into run mode well before you're actually going to run because yeah. it will start picking up the signal mm-hmm. 
Whereas if you just do all that when you're actually about to start the run, yeah, yeah, you, you, yeah you'll waste the first, um, like five minutes yeah. of it just trying to get a save. Well, and some watches will tell you, um, the watch that I currently train with, um, you know, it'll t- I, I, I try and get it set up, um, but I probably don't do it correctly either. Like ideally it seems to work best if I set it on the top of my car while I'm getting my shoes on stretching and stuff like that at the trailhead, you know, before I go. But sometimes, you know, I'm still in my garage when I hit, put it in run mode. And it's probably having a hard time picking up, you know, the satellites. Um, And it'll tell me, hey, it's not ready or it still hasn't found your heart rate or whatever that might be. Um, But but the older models weren't, uh, (laughs) there wasn't as much communication. It was just kind of like start, stop. And and then it would tell you after the fact (laughs) or, you know, five miles into the race. It was like, okay, we finally have a satellite. Mile one <laughs> took you 25 minutes. So We should give a shout out to Coros actually because um, it's good to see like uh, small companies like shaking it up a little bit yeah and um so it's not just a monopoly of the big companies yeah exactly yeah no i i agree i i really want this podcast to not feel like we're overly promoting any brand i i I certainly have it in my um my makeup to want to give those shout outs but yes i i currently do train with a coros apex which has a very long battery life and uh has has 3d gps um Ah. a new trail running mode um that seems to help at least um where i live i'm surrounded by mountains like (laughs) i can't go anywhere where i'm not under the shadow of a mountain um and it seems to be picking up those those really tight turns and trails um and i'm looking forward to actually doing some measurement uh for the races that we um that we put on in in some of those really high alpine uh, environments that are either under the shade of trees or under the shade of mountains um to see how much more accurate our uh our maps become because even as a race director, you know, you hate it when you, you advertise a distance and someone comes back and they're like, Hey, that was 2k longer than I thought. And especially on a trail, you know, it may, it may be created with Google maps, like, cause you're just kind of piecing together trail forks, so to speak. And, and then people come back and you, you have to kind of aggregate it, You know, you can go on a Strava and download everyone's GPX that, that uploads it. And it's like, wow, we have quite a range. They all ran the same distance, the same route and got two to three kilometers of variation just based on how regularly they're they're sampling or how old or new their uh their device is so uh appreciate you mentioning that um one other question that that does have to do with that pace and the distance um you you mentioned it briefly um but this is this seems to be a relatively new technology the the indoor running uh measurements or metric on the watch um, whether it's with the foot pod or not, what, what is being measured when someone is on a treadmill running or, or, or even indoors running on an indoor track? Um, how is that GPS or are mm. they, are they using cadence something or something with their arm or how, how does that work? I'm, yeah. I get asked this all the time. Um, mostly because people are uploading their watch data and they're saying, Hey, but the treadmill said this and my watch says this. And, and often there's quite a bit of discrepancy between the two. Yeah, uh, totals and paces and that kind of thing. So. Yeah, it's a good question. Is it voodoo magic, or, uh, <laughs> or is it real? <laughs> Seriously, how how are the satellites coming through these? these uh, it's Big Brother. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's a good, it's a good question. It's a valid question. So uh, around about, um, well, I mean the the idea of um, being able to measure your pace on your watch without a foot pod on a treadmill indoors. 
um, has been around for a bit. I mean, certainly it was around in 2012 for sure. Um, but then it made a kind of a step forward. Um, I can't remember the, the exact time, whether it was 2013, 14, but it made a, a distinct step forward to being more reliable and accurate. Um, so what's happening is, we discussed the foot pod idea before, that's a sensor that's, um, and what I mean by sensor is basically it's a circuit board <laughs> under the covers, clips onto your shoe, mainly on, on the shoelace. And the most important thing on that circuit board is an accelerometer. And uh, the, without going into too much detail, um, you can break out the acceleration data and you can figure out what is a foot strike, basically. In fact, you can figure out a lot more than that, but ultimately you can figure out where a foot contact begins and ends, um, you know, because basically an acceleration curve has a typical profile. There's a spike, positive spike at the start, and then it goes down and fluctuates around zero. But um, you can basically figure out one step from another. That's essentially it. And um, that's in the foot pod scenario. So uh, what's been around for, um, as I said, um, as several years, I'd say, is that you can do it in the watch as well. So the accelerometer can be inside the watch, mounted on the circuit board there. And um, uh, it just requires different algorithms to understand what's happening because now you're not hitting the ground, which caused people a lot of problems, caused Garmin and others some headaches. When you hit the ground, there's a very clear, what we call IPA or initial peak acceleration. That's the first spike when you strike the ground. You can isolate that very easily with filters. When it's on the wrist, the problem is, is figuring out when one arm motion ends and when the next one begins, right? Um, because it's not a pronounced impact that's happening. And that's why the early years of this technology were not very good because it couldn't really understand the mechanics of an arm swing until people refine the algorithms and realize how to do it. And so today it should be relatively, I don't know whether to say accurate or not, but it's within it's within enough error to tell you roughly where you are on the treadmill. Um, it's not hyper precise, of course. It also, all these algorithms are fundamentally flawed by one thing. They only know what they're told to know. So what happens in Garmin and other companies is that you, you, you test, you field test the product as much as you possibly can with people with crooked arm swings because <laughs> you're trying to test the algorithms that they can pick up different runners mm -hmm. but you can own they can only understand what they've been fed mm -hmm. so there will always be people out there this is the reality uh who have weird uh, form weird arm swings some people don't even swing their arms at all very much some people, some people swing them high swing them low it's all over the place right um there's always going to be people with different arm swings where it's less accurate and so there's some sort of model where if you fit that model of a perfect arm swing your numbers will be great <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so that's what's happening really um, with the with the pure watch. No GPS now. You've set it to indoor mode, and it's just internal on the watch. That's what's happening. Is that accelerometer inside the watch is, is doing the best it can. Never, it's never going to be hyper accurate. And um, so, what's going to happen? We know the treadmill is ground truth. So, what happens if people don't know in a treadmill is that um, depending on the type of treadmill you have, I mean, they're all they're different. But a standard type of treadmill has got a barrel or cylinder at the front and maybe one at the, probably one at the back as well. And so what we know, the circumference of the barrel. So we know with really, really good accuracy what speed the treadmill is going at at any time because we can measure um, how fast this, this cylinder, this barrel is turning around. And so um, 
uh, what you see on a treadmill really is accurate generally <laughs> unless there's something functionally wrong with the treadmill it's accurate so you always believe the treadmill first and you believe the watch second so um, when there's a discrepancy between the two, if you, if you get the same number from both, well done. That's, that's magic. You've obviously got something close to the ideal running form and mechanics that the person who programmed the algorithms thought was going to happen. <laughs> right? And so um, that's kind of my, my sort of, yeah, my sort of highlight on that is um, um, when you do have a discrepancy, you always believe the treadmill first, unless there's some reason you know the treadmill looks like it's 20 years old or someone's hammered it or whatever unless there's some other reason then you always believe that yeah for sure okay yeah that that was my thinking as well um and it's not because i'm partial to the treadmill um <laughs> but it uh it seemed to make sense that you know the the belt and or the cylinder that <laughs> those are fixed metrics and and it's not uh we're not using an algorithm we're not guessing as much it's it's a it's an equation yeah, <laughs> like yeah, it's, yeah. it's being measured and calculated um, as it goes and so that was my assumption but i uh my sense is that based on the questions that i get uh, a number of people are trusting their watches or thinking that maybe their watches aren't accurate because they're they're going back and forth between between um uh the out, outdoor, outdoor and the indoor, and so yeah. so they're maybe they're they're just trying to understand, and that's why we ask the question here. Um, but typically, if I'm outside, I trust my watch, um, and if I'm inside, I trust the treadmill. The only time that I've ever actually personally found my watch indoor watch readings to be comparable, <laughs> really like it within any proximity to the measured distance on the treadmill has been on one of those curved treadmills where you're actually like the, the rat on the, on the treadmill, um, where you're the one self-propelling. And so I know that I'm actually moving quite a bit slower (laughs) typically. And, and I am propelling it forward, which seems to probably better align my, my arm swing with my leg swing and and it seems like those metrics are probably more accurate and, sure. and the, the, they seem to be more closely aligned whereas if i'm on this the traditional treadmill where the belt is moving and i'm moving uh, maybe it's my I, I i do believe it's my form my my mechanics aren't you know i, do, I don't look like kipchoge when i run um i look like a guy that should weigh 200 pounds that's trying to weigh as little as possible like uh, running from a bear kind of thing um, so it, it's not pretty, but, uh, and it's not as efficient as it could be. And so I, in most cases, I assume I'm an outlier <laughs> and the te- technology is likely, um, uh, flawed because it doesn't take into account me, um, or most individuals. Uh, whereas if it's something like a treadmill, I, yeah, I, again, it's, it can still be flawed. Um, and that, I guess that brings me to my next question and it's a question I get, um, to make, running on a treadmill accurate <laughs> maybe we can transition to treadmill training uh sometimes we hear about uh increasing the um the vert or the um, yeah, incline the yeah. in- incline uh, or, or the angle by one percent or two percent uh what do you say to that um I, i've read scientists and, and engineers discuss <laughs> both uh some people say it's because of wind resistance or just that treadmills are naturally to decline. So, so what are your thoughts uh, on that? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I think the, I think kind of the opinion amongst um, people, people that I respect and listen to has sort of 
leveled out at around about 1%. Um, uh, what's happening? Let's look at the wind resistance one because you just kind of picked up on that, for example. So outside you have a wind resistance and indoors you're basically not moving any air really at all. You essentially create sort of a pocket of air around yourself that never never goes anywhere. <laughs> so, um, uh, but the thing about wind resistance is we know that it's really at higher speeds that it makes a significant difference. For, um, so if you're just kind of cruising around at seven minute kilometers or something like that, wind resistance is probably not doing a huge amount. Um, it's not a linear relationship, but anyway, we know that um, when you're shifting, when you're really flying, Kipchoge style, then wind resistance becomes a thing, right? Um, and so uh, what you're trying to simulate is what I would call running resistance. So I should probably touch on the mechanics for a second here. So there are two fundamentally different processes happening. When you're running outside, your foot strikes the ground and the foot is then stationary. It does not move. There's micro movements, but it's essentially it's stationary for however long, 200, 300, 350 milliseconds, whatever. What happens is the, uh, the hips change angle and the torso slingshots over the foot, right? With its momentum and its movement and kinetic linkage. On a treadmill, it's not the same. So your foot strikes the ground, the treadmill belt drags the foot behind you and extends the hips for you. So it's, they're two entirely different uh, concepts. And so when your foot is moved for you, behind you, without like in a completely <laughs> involuntary way, um, that affects sort of um, the energetics or let's, let's you know, um, it's essentially how much work you've got to do. So you're increasing the uh, angle on the, or gradient on the treadmill to, to make a compensation for that. Okay. And um, whereas outside, you're having to do this work. The foot is stationary, so you must send the body over the foot um, manually, <laughs> essentially. Um, so um, that and some other things, kind of you roll it together into what you might call a running resistance or rolling resistance or whatever you want to call it. And um, we're compensating for that by having some sort of um, uh, slope angle put onto the treadmill. I don't think there's any magic about it. I think most people are settling out generally around about 1% incline. Um, frankly, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you can go to one and a half or you can be at half. As long as there's some kind of like tiny amount of incline, then it appears that mechanically you're kind of compensating for this difference of indoor outdoor running. And um, other than that, uh, the only other change I noticed some you know, back in the past, in this basement that we sat in, I used to have like three or four different treadmills, which are entirely different and compare the results from each of those types of treadmill. When you get on something like a Woodway, which is a rubber slap belt treadmill, like Caterpillar style treadmill, then there's some, it appears in the data that you don't necessarily have to increase from zero because, or maybe only increase to a half percent because there's already resistance built into the nature of the treadmill belt. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas when you're on a classical style treadmill where, you know, all the weights at the front and the drive motor is at the front and you've just got a, you know, you've got a tension belt that just goes over a rear roller or whatever. And they generally have quite a lot of, um, spring in the deck. Then, um, then you're generally doing less work to run that kind of a treadmill. So you would increase the gradient or the angle a little bit and you might go one or one and a half percent. I've never heard of anybody going beyond 2% and feeling that that's necessary. I think that's too, too much then. So that's kind of like, yeah, that's kind of what's going on there is um, um, 
you know, from a coach's perspective, what I would think of anyway, you can agree or maybe not, is you're just trying to get the person to simulate the correct amount of work, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so that um, one mile or 10 miles feels the same, basically, in terms of work output. But yeah, I, I just I just kind of finish off by saying, uh, visualize in your head, the overground running, the foot does not move, it is stationary on the ground. On a treadmill, the foot is, pulled, is moved for you. Um, so they're fundamentally two different things. Okay. Good, thank you. Um, so this that kind of brings up a couple other questions. Um, for training purposes, um, is it better then to uh, train indoors on a treadmill or or train outside uh, on a different surface? Um, how, what would your from yeah. a scientific perspective? Okay, I'll bring the scientific perspective. Now I'm going to throw it back to you from the coaching perspective. Okay. Um. And, and again, these are <laughs> these are listener questions and, and athlete yeah. questions that, that we receive. There, I yeah. already have my my your answers, yeah, uh, yeah. but but I <laughs> I wanted to answer or ask these questions and, and try and yeah. uh, you know you and I I think agree on most things, most but, stuff, definitely. but yeah. I think it's helpful to provide mm-hmm. both of our perspectives as often as possible. Sure. For sure. So. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think there's no yes or no. So I work in a clinic um, several days a week. Uh, me and my buddy Evan, we run the clinic. And um, and we, our, our number one focus is runners and running injury prevention. That's what we do. And uh, so we do with a lot of people who are injured or have a history of injuries, don't want to get injured again, whatever. And um, uh, I often prescribe treadmill running. And the reason why is because um, uh, it's... It, Doing your workout, when you know you've got an injury problem currently or past, you're kind of vulnerable to injuries for some reason, then treadmill running is a great solution. It's fantastic because you can jump off the treadmill immediately. You don't run through the pain. You just come straight off the treadmill, right? You can then objectively assess whether that was a real pain or not or something transient. You can change the angle. We know that treadmills are generally softer. So if you take a treadmill versus running on asphalt or concrete, it is far softer. That means there's less impact coming into the body. The cumulative impact over 10,000, 20,000 foot strike is way less. And for certain injuries, that's really important. So the treadmill has its place, no doubt about it. If it's minus 20 outside, I would be suggesting people run the treadmill and not outside in minus 20, <laughs> you know, falling over on snow and ice, uh, if that's your thing. And um, But of course, then we come to the other side of the other side of the fence and we say, well, it's monotonous. It doesn't challenge the the, uh, 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 the neuromuscular system. So um, for some injuries, it can be bad. So if you want to, if you don't want to get runner's knee, you don't want to get uh, patella femoral syndrome, then uh, you're better off running on a on a varied surface. So you're better off going on trails, single track, grass, whatever it is, um, because that inherent instability underneath you switches the muscles on better. And you do a better job of holding joints like the knee in place. So they're kind of pluses and minuses. Um, then we've got the psychological part, which you can really talk about. I mean, some people just blink, just black and white refuse. Right? I mean, we have people in the clinic who I say, well, you've only got to run like three short intervals on the treadmill. And they're like, oh, I don't, I don't run treadmills. I don't do treadmills. <laughs> and so uh, they just, they just, it's part, it's against their religion to run the treadmill. <laughs> and so uh, there's that side of it as well. So I would say for me, on a scientific basis, it depends. Um, is the person prone to injury or not? Um, if so, what kind of injury? Um, what kind of workout they're doing as well? Um, you, you can tell me if you, if you think this is true. 
but I do prescribe people going on uh, treadmills for really kind of like fixed paced workouts mm -hmm. and, um, and some intervals as well mm -hmm. because of the, the amount of control you've got. You know, yeah. if I had to have somebody for, a, for, for an injury prevention reason, I had to have them run continuously uphill, mm -hmm. you're going to get on a treadmill because, you know, good luck trying to find a continuous uphill for like, you know, 20, 30 minutes. You, you can't do that. And so, uh, you know, that's, um, that's my cat. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, good luck. Good luck outside trying to find that continuous, um, continuous uphill. So you get on the treadmill and you can, you can control the angle and you can do it constantly for as long as you want. How does that work with what you see um, on the treadmills? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think as a, as a coach and, and part of the reason we we're doing this, um, it is it is truly an art and a science. And so uh, to a certain extent, like you just mentioned, um, with specific workouts, the goal is to, well, well, with any activity, the goal is to do the work. <laughs> um, as, as one of my um, former mentors, um, said the goal is to do the work so that you can do the work so that you can then do the work. And so it's, it's a lot about just doing the work. And, uh, and so if you're, if you're one of the people or if an athlete that I'm coaching is, is a person that, that really just needs to be able to dial in that pace, uh, sometimes it, I find it really beneficial to, to help them remove the other variables and just say, this is what this pace feels like. Um, especially if they're, if they're the type that is going to lose it, if they fluctuate by, you know, five or 10 seconds per kilometer or a mile because they're running into a headwind and then on the tailwind, they're making it all back up, but they just, they lose it by the time they get that tailwind or on the way out, they're losing it because they're going too fast and they can't control themselves. So sometimes, sometimes I like the treadmill because it not only controls the variables, it helps us control our minds and the, the places they go. And, uh, and at the same time, I think sometimes learning that discipline, like marathons are boring. I mean, like really, like they're, they, it is as monotonous as it gets unless you choose to do a road ultra and then it's even more monotonous and try doing that on a track or, you know, a looped course. Uh, so I don't know why some people choose to do certain events when by nature uh, or like you say, it's against their religion to do something that's monotonous. It's like, you can't run on a treadmill for 5k, but you've just signed up for a hundred mile looped course. Like really, what part of this am I missing? Um, uh, but so I think sometimes learning that getting that mental fortitude and, and actually being bored can be beneficial and learning to just like lock into a pace and go into autopilot and, and realize that, and I can do this for three hours. I can do this for five hours. If I'm training for a race that's going to take me 24 hours, I, I, you know, I won't do that on the treadmill, but I, you know, just learning how to do some things with maybe even without Netflix, you know, like, um, at the same time, I, I find that treadmills can be beneficial for that specificity piece. Uh, but again, there are pros and cons. So for someone, I, I, I grew up more or less at sea level without any vert whatsoever anywhere. Um, it, well, we had one thing called the Butte, which was like a little molehill in the center of town. And I, one day I ran 22 miles or 35 K like loops, figure eights around the loop up and down, or of the Butte, up and down the Butte, just to get some trail and, um, hill training in, because that was the only place within an hour that I could go, um, an hour drive that I could go or more, um, to get any sort of vert in. So again, like you mentioned, if someone is training for a mountain race or even a race, a road race that has some hills in it, Boston even, and they're at, you know, they're in Florida. 
a treadmill, you can actually add some vert. You can, you can hike even for a mountain race. Um, and we live in Calgary where mountains are within 30 minutes or, you know, we live in this, in the Bow Valley. Um, and, and there are a lot of people in Calgary, uh, that, that train on a treadmill, not just because it's cold. Um, but they train on a treadmill for mountain races because they have families or they have jobs and, you know, they can't be in the mountains every day. They can maybe get there one day out of the weekend. But, uh, so for just out of a convenience sake, um, doing some of that specific work, uh, it may not be technical. They may not be sliding down scree or whatever, but they're at least getting some of that hiking or, um, lower intensity, but higher, uh, higher incline training in, um, on the flip side, like you said, uh, I feel like even when I do too much, I, I notice, and, and I've, I do a fair bit of training on the treadmill during the winter, especially because um, I'm I'm not partial to the cold or layering up. You know, I don't I don't have an hour to layer up before a thirty minute run to then take all my layers off after a thirty minute run. I, like I'd prefer to run for an hour and a half and not <laughs> change. I'd prefer to do that in my shirt, you know, in a pair of shorts and a pair of shoes, and that's it. Um, so I do run on the treadmill a fair bit during winter, um, but but even then, I feel like I have to mix it up because of the monotony, the, the repetitive motion, even with you know, the undulating train and the, the new apps and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, I feel like I went into this last race that I did broken because I trained too much on the treadmill. Like mm-hmm. it was so cold in the month of February that I didn't leave the house for, for a month almost. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I put in a lot of volume on the treadmill higher volumes than I put in on any surface for a number of years, but it was just too repetitive. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that was part of what led to some, mm-hmm some nerve damage and hamstring issue again i don't blame the treadmill i i i could have and should have you know every other day just gone out for a really easy slog in the fresh snow or you know throwing the micro spikes on but it was it was negative 20 to negative 30 for almost a month and it was just unbearable so i just didn't leave the house and do that um but that being said i uh i i do think there can be people should be cautious and be aware that uh at the very least, you need to mix it up and not just run flat, you know, doing the loops around the track <laughs> every day on the, on the treadmill. Um, but, uh, again, there's, there's Zwift, there's iFit, there are some apps out there that, mm. that move with the treadmill and, and you can, you can, you can make it as, as authentic as you, as possible without actually being there. Mm. Um, but so one more question just to wrap up, um, related to treadmill and i'm sure we'll get back to this but uh one of the things that you do is is gait analysis um i mean that's kind of your specialty sure. uh what are the pros and cons of a remote gait analysis with sensors where someone can can run outdoors on trails on road on on gravel or dirt or grass versus coming into the clinic getting on a treadmill mm-hmm. having the cameras what what are the pros and cons of both of those? Um, just as we're as we're talking about the different surfaces and yeah, and that yeah, kind of thing. yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so the biggest thing by far is that uh, when you come into a clinic, such as for example the clinic I work in, then there are some other methods that can be used, um, which are complementary methods uh, into the like can be used as part of the gait analysis, and they offer more information which kind of builds a bigger picture of what's happening. So it's uh, remote gate analysis is it's, it's it's doing really well in terms of how it's advanced and the accuracy of what we're measuring and just how many things we can measure, but uh, but it, you know, it has its limitation when you get down to the nitty gritty of diagnosis because you'll often get to a point where 
you know what's wrong in terms of like in terms of the person's movement pattern you can see something that's that's not right that's not effective and um and, and the person obviously has had some history of injury that's probably why they're coming to you anyway uh, but you might end up with a couple of reasons why that can be and um, it's easier in the clinic to say which one of those reasons because you've just got a little bit more data to work with one of the kind of things that's really important with the remote gate analysis is collecting the person collects video uh, from the side and from the back what we call sagittal plane and posterior frontal plane and they send that video as well along with the data that's coming to uh, myself and um, that helps a lot because i can tell you right now like that um, you know i did like for example uh, one of those with a writer from uh, canadian running magazine we, we published it about a month ago and you know you could easily go down the wrong path with diagnosis if i hadn't seen the video like the video really crystallized what the data was showing um, and we made a conscious effort with runscribe which is the the, the technology that I helped develop and work with, we made a really conscious effort not to diagnose anything. You know, we we we, we produce the numbers, and then say, okay, <laughs> here's all the numbers you need, uh, liabilities and other things coming to play then. And uh, but with a remote gate analysis, I've only had one case so far. Uh, I mean, remote gate analysis is something that I do every week, and there might be like I don't know between one and ten people a week, and um, I've had one case so far where the person, where it wasn't possible to isolate the one root cause reason why this injury was occurring remotely. Otherwise, all of the other cases, yes. Because the truth is, I don't know if people want to know, if, if practitioners want this to be known or not, but the truth is, is mostly people come in with the same running injuries or the same root cause deficits and dysfunctions that cause the injuries. And that means uh, as long as your remote gate analysis hits certain areas, in most cases, you're going to figure out what's going on and why. Um, but there will be a case every now and then where it's just like, no, nah, this has this has to be done in the clinic because somebody needs to get their hands on the patient, do some manual testing and figure this out. Um, but I would say, I mean, so far, I've only had one case like that. So, I mean, it's, um, it's a very, very limited number of cases so far um, from what I've seen. But yeah, the clinic, uh, the clinic is, the, is the kitchen sink, ultimately. Um, we can do um, very controlled multiple multi-speed testing indoors and outside and um, and we can do all manner of like uh, manual testing strength testing uh, flexibility testing functional movement testing all that kind of stuff so um, yeah that's kind of the difference between the two approaches but it's it's funny with remote gate analysis because it was kind of like uh, uh, if you go back several years people were attempting it but it really wasn't legitimate and you kind of question well, what value is this adding because the person's going to need to go to the clinic anyway um, whereas today now it's starting to really add value and you know I'm biased in saying this but I think uh, Runscribe is the best product in the world right now for doing this um, for various reasons and it's got to a level now where we can compute well on my version of it anyway um, I can see more than 30 bilateral metrics um, I can we can measure I mean the multitude of things that I can see and I'll kind of finish up by saying that the body is is a series of complicated systems that all interact and so this is why conventional like, this is why basic gate analysis in say shoe stores and some clinics is essentially a waste of time is because if you're not collecting a huge amount of data that you can't you can't analyze a series of complicated systems like the body by just collecting a few bits of data in isolation you have no idea what you don't know and what you're not seeing 
And so uh, that's the beauty of where we've got to with RunScribe is that we're collecting so much data now, so many metrics, like parameters, that it's now possible to start cross-correlating them and looking at them in groups and clusters of parameters and realize, oh, hang on a second, I can see what's going on here. You know, and then you can blind test against parameters and stuff like that. If you're correct, you know you're on the right path kind of thing. So um, yeah, it's, it's now got some real scientific and medical legitimacy. And, um, and yeah, I'd like to see it sort of like, you know, obviously like grow because uh, not everybody can get to a clinic um, readily. Um, maybe people don't have benefits to cover expensive clinic treatments and stuff. So yeah, hopefully it will grow in the future, but that kind of gives you an idea of uh, how it's different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. So this is uh, this is episode three, and hopefully, if you've listened to all three episodes up to this point, you you've gotten to know us a little bit. You have some sense of who we are, um, some of our background, some of uh, what we do, and who we've worked with. Uh, you'll get to know us better uh, as we go on. But uh, again, we we ask that you submit questions um, that you have. Uh, again, we we make notes of questions that we receive on a regular basis um both through social media but also with the with the various athletes with whom we work and so um we want this to be a resource for you um and you know something that that you find beneficial and where you're learning um and we don't mind if it gets us out, out of our comfort zone a little bit too and, uh we feel like it it's a will be a beneficial process for all of us. So uh, you can you can find us at uh, Run Physics with an F or Peak Run Performance. Those are the two um, places through which we offer our services. And then we'll uh, this this will also be available where where other podcasts are, are found on iTunes and Stitcher and YouTube and those respective places. So. Thank you.